On today's episode of Before You Kill Yourself, I have Scott Britton, who uh, founded Battle Cancer, uh, because he lost a lot of family members and, and friends from a young age to cancer, and he decided to turn his pain into a purpose. Uh, but we're going to really delve into a lot of deep conversations uh, today uh, regarding how to cope with loneliness, feelings of loneliness, and how to cope with feeling like a burden. I'll also get into uh, how to communicate openly and honestly with your significant other. I mean, he has some really great tips, and he also has a book recommendation that I think all of you will enjoy, so tune in for that. And uh, one of my, my favorite quotes uh, from this episode is, um, uh, I'm just a little bit sad. I like that. I don't know, I don't know why that quote is, uh, but it was just, uh, I just like it. Oh, no, the, and then the other quote was, tipping forward into doing something great. He said that, and I actually forget what it was in reference to. So you got to listen, but just that phrase, tipping forward into doing something great, uh, is is just an amazing uh, quote from the episode. So stay tuned, and once again, if you haven't already, uh, if you're looking for one-on-one coaching with yours truly, go to thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com, and we could turn your traumas and tragedies into an upward trajectory. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's hop into the episode. Scott Britton, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Where are you at? So, yeah, I'm, I'm over in England. So I'm in a little sleepy place called Devon over in England. And how far is that from Chester? Oh, so you know a little bit of England. Um, so <laughs> I was, I'm actually from Manchester. So Manchester is not too far from Chester. So, I mean, we're, we're right down the south end of the country in Devon. So we're probably five hours away from Chester, maybe. Yeah, about five hours. Oh, wow. Now, well, I know because, uh, well, I'm asking because I just had someone on my, my podcast recently, Kevin uh, Hochar, who's a, a professor out there and psychologist researcher uh, and he's in Chester England so ah, okay. uh, I'm, I'm getting a bunch of uh, a bunch of people from England and Ireland on the podcast recently you guys are taking over entertainment and you're taking over the <laughs> podcast so nice well I've listened to quite a few episodes so I, I'll uh, I'll wait for a few more of us Brits to make an appearance Seeing as we're not allowed to invade your country anymore, so at least we can come in for entertainment. Well, yeah, you could come over. You just gotta stay six feet away. That's it. You could get six <laughs> feet from the border, and then that's it. You just you just gotta hang out there until this whole thing blows over. Um, no, I mean, we've we we left um, we left LA just at the beginning of lockdown, so we were on a on a massive tour of of the US promoting battle cancer and 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 the fundraising on our program that we do. And then the, the coronavirus hit, so we were we actually left from from LAX as it was going, and it was I wanted to stay, but we were told to go. Well, speaking of which, you know, you talked about your fundraiser. T- tell us about Battle Cancer and 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 what got you involved with that. Yeah, so oh my, it started a very long time ago. So. I'd always had this thing where um, it was kind of like a, like a dark joke that growing up that I knew how to behave myself at a funeral more than I did at a wedding because just growing up family members, extended family members from 
uh, grandparents to aunts and uncles, they just all died of cancer when I was very small. So it was like a really strong memory of constantly being at funerals and, and asking why this person had passed away and it was always cancer. So I'd for many years I'd done really small fundraising events. So things that were like a meat free march and I'd done tough mudder events and I'd done all these kind of things. And like it's great and when people do individual things it's amazing. But it didn't bring an awful lot of fundraising or attention to, to the cause. And at the time, we were, I was fundraising for one particular charity in the UK called McMillan Cancer Support. And what they do is like a full range and the name kind of gives it away. They don't only just care for you if you're going through illness, but they pick up an awful lot of practical support and support for your family. Um, <clears throat> so I was at the time competing in a sport called powerlifting. And I was like, okay, I can do something here. And I'm really good at a lift called a deadlift. I was like, let's capture people's imagination and how can I do that? So I think let's pick up something really, really heavy. So what's heavy and what would need like lifting? So I thought of the the ship, the Titanic. I was like, the, the Titanic sunk. So we can like lift it out. It's really big. People will get their head around it. Um, <clears throat> and I completely miscalculated how heavy that thing was. Like I, I genuinely thought I could do it on my own, like deadlift the equivalent weight of this gigantic ship. Um, and when I very quickly realized like I couldn't, I had to get more and more people involved. So this like initial thing that happened to me got more and more people involved and we, we did this incredible challenge and it was genuinely life-changing. We made like 40,000 pounds off that one thing, which was amazing. I'd never fundraised that amount before. Um, and it just gave this idea of that collectively we are so much stronger. So, you know, if we're all pulling towards that same goal and the biggest thing that developed out of doing that initial part that spurred us on to bring back cancer was people from all around the country never met each other before. They didn't know each other. They came and shared their, like what we call like my, the scar stories, and there was no judgment. There was no, uh, there was no pity. There was no sympathy. There was just genuine empathy. So the fundraising was amazing. People did fantastic things with that. But the connections of people that were made through this shared, unfortunately, very bad thing that happened to them in their life made super strong bonds with people. So I took the decision to try and book a gigantic events venue. Um, everyone was like, don't book it. You'll never fill it. Uh, but I did. Um, and we launched from, from one event where it's super accessible, functional fitness for people. Like you don't even need to have stepped foot in a gym to come to our event and know what to do. It's really easy movements so have incredibly light weights, but it's all about testing you in these four workouts that you do across the day. And if you're an elite athlete, like you can absolutely pull your heart out and, and do really well. And if you're an average joe when it comes to training and what you do again you can pull your heart out and you have this massive release for you and and from that point we've we've gone from 2017 where we had one event to this year we had 10 <laughs> scheduled events like last year we, we ran seven um before coronavirus hit we were scheduled to have 10 events two in the u.s um we've got events in spain germany sweden iceland uk um, and like our London event is by far the biggest. We have like 1600 athletes all come together, um, and do fundraising. And so far we've fundraised in dollars, about $800,000, um, from our tiny little event. And, and up until this year, we were just a group of two people, um, that put these events on and continue to grow it uh, whilst working full time as well. So it's, it's just evolved from this initial thing that, grew we've just carried on growing and growing and accumulating more people more stories and, and more fundraising 
Man, what an incredible story of of turning a, a, a your pain in a, in a prosperity and in a purpose. And uh, you know, quick question: What kind of cancer did you have? So, I, like, I personally, I physically haven't <clears throat> haven't had cancer. Um, so, I, like, I haven't been ill, thankfully. Um, but it was growing up; it was like a lot of family members passed away from yeah. from that. Um, and then a, a key part of, uh, that was my, my wife, her, her grandmother got breast cancer. Um, she had treatment, she recovered. And then within two or three weeks of, of recovery, her grandfather got lung cancer and died within two months. Um, so it was seeing that as well, like very close up and seeing the effects of that reach that pushed that on. So, yeah, we've I personally haven't, but uh, a very common um, form of cancer as I was growing up from losing people and still in, in adult life was was lung related. And I, that would tended to be towards people, the industries that people worked in of a certain age. Yeah. Usually, you know, there's a surprising uh, link between well, I mean, not surprising, but uh, it's not just smoking, but I, but there's also a link between people who drink uh, coffee or hot beverages and lung cancer because uh, when you drink a hot beverage, you're basically scorching your throat. Uh, and, you know, we don't really think about it like that. But so if you are scorching your throat and then also smoking cigarettes or in uh, in an environmental um, hazardous area, say like a construction site, or like L.A., where like the you know the air pollution is insane, so the lung cancer rates are actually uh, through the roof in L.A. Uh, it, it leaves you more susceptible. So there's all these things uh, that can that can cause something like lung cancer outside uh, of smoking that that we don't really think about. Uh, I th- yeah, hundred percent. I think one of the biggest things of what we're trying to do here as well, like we, we put the fundraising events on, which are fantastic, but we have a, a program that we've worked with for the past 18 months. And now we're taking in and bringing to, to kind of new, new locations. Um, and it, it's like a dual purpose really. And, and this is why it's super interesting talking to yourself that in fact, cancer is, it's not a virus. So, you know, you talk about coronavirus right now, like that's a germ that's picked up, it invades your body, becomes symbiotic and causes various problems. And, and you know what happens from there. Like cancer is a reaction that happens within one's own body. So it's a reaction to something that's happened, whether you're like biologically predetermined to be more susceptible to it or not. And and one of the biggest things that we're learning with and we're trying to actively combat is, is in relation to stress because stress be that from your working environment, from the pressures of life, from struggling from a mental health standpoint, stress is a reaction that the body causes and, and the known physical reactions to stress is unbelievable. And, and, and cancer is now being more and more linked to people who are undergoing high, either extensive periods of high stress and that's why more young and younger people are, are getting it especially males younger males uh, are persi- are like the numbers are going up more and more of people who get testicular cancer who get lymphomic cancer and, and a huge aspect to this is is stress and, and that mental aspect and what that can actually do to your body you know that's interesting because uh, you know along with that stress is also uh, a lot of young young people drinking more and more caffeine which is also a stressor mm-hmm. so I think you have the psychological stressor of uh, whatever they're going on. I mean, we live in a society and in a world where 
um, it, it's just not where you can literally work 24 hours. It's not like back in the day yeah. where like you have to blow out a candle or light a candle to work <laughs> at night. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you and, and, and now because of uh, everything being more uh, intercom, um, you know, uh, globally connected, like, you know, I have, I have some friends who have to work, wake up at three o'clock in the morning to, to, uh, to, uh, to do business in China. Um, yeah. you know, so we, we have that kind of stress and then you have the social media, which is like mm. an opportunity to, to look at all the things that everybody else seems to be doing and crushing and killing. And, uh, you know, the rock is always in the gym and Kevin Hart is like in 12 movies, you know, as a production, <laughs> it's like everybody's doing all the things all the time and raising a family and, you know, yeah. with six pack abs. And, uh, and so you're like, Oh, I can't, I can't lay on it. I can't just sit here and Zen out. I got to like get back on a treadmill. So yeah, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of FOMO out there. And that's, that's a huge aspect of it. And, and although like, don't get me wrong, social media can be an insane power to connect people, to give information, to help people. Um, but one of the the main issues that, that we've seen in relation to, to that with social media is, exactly what you said about people not really wanting to put, you know, the bad side out there, not feeling comfortable and not having a place to share. And that was one of the key things about our events and our London event. Like I say, we had, we had 4,000 plus people there. We had 1600 like athletes that were taking part in our workouts. And, and you, you were walking through this, this event space all day and hearing people who were strangers talk about things that they may not have told the best friends about, or they may not told the work colleagues and we when we do our fundraising tours where we drop to drop in lots of different gyms around different countries um one of the biggest things i always ask is if people can just put their hand up if they have been affected by cancer or somebody they know um and the statistic that we've given by the american cancer society is one in two so they always say that you should have about 50 percent of the room they'll put their hand up and nearly every time it's almost every single person by like one or two and what i always highlight to those people is did any of you know that you all had that thing in common? And I'm like, no, because when we come into the gym or we meet each other socially, we don't say, do you know what? I'm really missing my dad right now. And I have massive guilt because I wasn't there when he, he passed away. That's not a normal conversation that people have, but creating a space where people have that ability to do that is, is a really big thing. And, and social media is fantastic champions out there. Like, look at what you're doing on loads of different multimedia is incredible. But there's also the others, like, you know, like you say, that unfortunately people like the like Kevin Hart, where every single post is perfect life. And you wouldn't dream of, you know, putting out there, do you know what? Today was one of the worst days I've had in the past couple of months. Like, we you, we don't do that as humans, where we're trying to create a safe space for see that, even if it's just once a year. So they come to our event once a year, they get to meet people, have that conversation. We think that's really important to not only mental recovery, but phys like physical recovery. And they're so intertwined. It it's unbelievable. You know, what, what are some of the things that you do to cope with stress? Like what, what's, how do you, how do you stay calm? What do you do when you, when you get all riled up? Uh, yeah. I mean, so this is something that, uh, like I'm a big believer in. First of all, it's so difficult. Like everybody has to have their own like measures of things. And I think the first step is knowing when you are stressed. So I think that's 
the biggest identifier is knowing when you are stressed. Um, so like a tiny little bit of background, like before going into full time with battle cancer now, I've worked in, in the police as a detective for, for eight years. Um, and I've seen a huge amount of frontline mental health crisis. And I've seen unfortunately an awful lot of dealt with an awful lot of, of suicides and serious crimes. And at first it was always very much like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, but then it was noticing that I would maybe react slightly different to things. So I kind of wrote a, a bio of like normal Scott, which is, okay, what do you define as normal? But, you know, day to day at home, like everything's kind of fine, Scott. And then like my reactions and bio is like stressed out, Scott, or something's happening, uh, which wasn't always overt. So it wasn't like I was angry. It wasn't like I was like, you know, I'd sit moody or anything, but I was always like, look at the cup and it would be half full or little things would start to annoy me. So it was, first of all, for me, it was like looking at when do I actually need to kind of make some self-intervention and, and do something for me. Um, and then the other thing is is fitness. Like that is a huge thing for me is the ability to move. So, and, and fitness is anything. It, it isn't just a sport. It isn't just uh, like weight training. It, it's movement of any kind is, is a form of fitness. And setting small goals was, is a big thing for me. And it's advice that I try and give to people all the time. Because quite often when you're stressed or you're depressed or things are not going very well mentally, you you don't have control. And it's like right now, like so many people don't have control over their businesses. They don't have control over their, you know, their mortgage. They don't have control over so many things. And to bring some of that control back, you can set yourself just small wins. So for me, the first win is, okay, am I going to go and train? So just get in there that's the win. Like, you know, even if I don't have the best workout ever, if I don't hit PRs left, right and center, just getting there that day, that was the first win. So like, that's a tick box. Like I've controlled that and I've done it. And then it could be completing, you know, two, three different kinds of workouts or, or something along those lines where I could write something that I could grasp that day that wasn't too aspirational. That when I look back, there was a tick list of, oh, actually I've First of all, I've controlled some stuff and I've actually achieved something. And slowly you can start to turn your mind back to being positive when you're starting to, to have little wins as opposed to just kind of constantly losing, if that makes sense. I love that, man. Setting small goals, just the fact that you said set small goals made me relax a little bit more for whatever reason. Just now I was like, oh, yeah, because because you're right. There are times where we're stressed and we don't even know it because it's like a low level. It's not like a, a angry. We only recognize mm. the extremes in us, but we don't recognize like the low grade uh, irritation, annoyances, yeah. uh, the hurt or sadness, uh, uh, the slight overwhelm. You know, it's just a little too much on my plate. And, uh, yeah. and until it blows up, it's almost like when you're eating, right? Like you don't notice you're full. <laughs> until a half hour later, like as you're eating, you're just stuffing your face, and then you sit back. You're like, "Oh man, I'm full. I was like full an hour ago. Why did I keep eating?" It's it's the same thing emotionally, right? Like we we we're, we're such poor detectives of our own emotions and and how oh, we feel. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, it was always like um, my response was always just, "I was like, I'm just a bit sad." Like. Um, and, and somebody I spoke to, a young person who's like a, a cancer survivor who's part of our Move Forward program, he's a, he's a coach now and he inspires lots of other people. He summed it up in like a fantastic way. He said, you know, if you, he, he talks about, he sometimes gets concerned when he's got like a chest pain, he thinks that his cancer's coming back. 
So he said, like, that's a thought. He says, so it's not something I can grasp. It's not, you know, like a, it's not a cup, a glass of water. It's not a box of chocolates. It's, it's a thought. He says, and then the problem with that thought is if I am stressed or I'm feeling particularly down right now, that will then from me in a normal state, that would be like, no, okay, I'm fine. Like it's not the same pain. He says, but when he's starting to go down that path, he starts then thinking and asking even more questions from that initial thought. He said, so it then becomes, well, okay, I'm now going to have to go back to the doctors. I'm going to have to tell my, my, my girlfriend that I've had a chest pain. I'm going to have to like ring my support worker and tell him about a chest pain. Maybe I need to check my health insurance. Like all these things start to run. He says, and that's when he knows he's, he's on a bit of a downward path because he's starting to ask more questions of himself than he normally would. And and I thought that was a fantastic way of summing it up when you don't really know that you're stressed, but you're having those early signs. Cause you're, you're right. We don't, we are probably going to spot the stress with a loved one or even a work colleague before you really like to, to catch it with yourself. Yeah. You, you know, you, you said something earlier about, um, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought just now. Well, uh, Oh, but when you're a police detective, you know, um, when you see so many things like, you know, the, the crimes that you saw and the suicides and things like that, were there other things you also did to kind of to cope with what you were seeing and experiencing? Was yeah. That- so, I mean, I mean, in the last um, I'd say like last summer, so the summer of, of 2019, there was a particularly high number of like young male suicides that I like uh, went and dealt with. And when I say dealt with, I turned up at the scene, made assessments of what was going on, spoke to the family, had to explain to them what happened. And then this sounds a very cold way of describing this, but processed the body. Now that in itself means that I've searched this person, I've held them, I've like moved them around, I've assessed what's gone on with them. Um, and I probably had like six in six weeks. So it was almost like a weekly occurrence that I was dealing with someone under the age of like 35 who'd taken their own life. And I've always been like very good at work and fantastic at picking up like, you know, being a, an emotional support for the family and helping them through the next stages of what was going to happen. But I just always found I was just like sad. So I was like, well, I need to do something here for me. So as as silly as this sounds, I would always have like an instant reaction. If I came home afterwards, it was, I'm going to actively pick to watch something on like Netflix or television that I know will make me laugh. Like, even if it's something that I've watched a hundred times before, um, I'll pick it and I will sit there and I will watch it. And at some point it will just create that stimulus in my body to make me laugh. I was like, it's going to be really, really bad times if, if it doesn't. Um, and that would help. And then I would even pick, I would have like a separate playlist. So I would have a playlist that I made on Spotify of songs that either invoked a fantastic memory. So it could have been something from my wedding. It could have been something from when I was younger or like just even songs that are really upbeat. So whilst their external factors it's just things that would help me feel like uh not so sad about the world they would kind of make me come back to being me around my loved ones and around my friends instead of kind of feeling uh this void that's kind of created from because what you do you 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 try and put up uh like the wall of thinking well i'm not going to become emotionally attached to this person and this family i'll be an emotional support for them but i'm not going to become attached and one of the problems with that, and, and this is not just for police, it's for all kinds of first responders. And especially now when you look at people working in the, the medical system and, and lives being lost to, to the virus, you you detach that emotion, but then you become detached yourself. 
So for me, it was like, let's just like laugh again. Let's just find something funny. Let's listen to things that are upbeat, you know, picking a book that I knew I'd read before. So it wasn't like a gamble. I've read this book. It's like a heartwarming book. It's a really good story. Little things like that just kind of make you warm again from being like stone cold. If that, if that's kind of a good way of describing it. What books do do you read and reread that you, uh, that you find heartwarming? I, I'm, I love books. I just, I'm always buying, I'm always like reading three books at one time. Like, uh, nice. uh, so, so yeah, what books are you reading that you find heartwarming? So it would always be like, it was a mixture. So I, uh, I had like a number of, of like autobiographies that I went to, um, which would either be, and, and when I say heartwarming, not necessarily in the sense of something that's necessarily like, like a, a gooey, like Marley and me kind of thing. It was, it would be something that would have a lot of positivity or, or a lot of advice or a lot of structure. Um, so like key people really that had, had done some fantastic things in their life. Um, you know, you look at the books by Obama and then you look at like, you see people's struggles in different ways and how they react to that struggle. And you can cherry pick the things that might work for you. I mean, you know, that's like a super obvious one, super, someone super inspirational. But I also really liked autobiographies of like, uh, like eighties and nineties, like rock stars. So you read like guns and roses and like, um, people like that. And like Lemmy from motorhead who oddly had like a fantastic way of looking at the world, um, and would respond to things and, and deal with their own stresses in the, in their own way. Like um, what, when you say a funny way, well, like what, what were his ways? <laughs> Well, yeah. So, I mean, like you, you remove the things of when you look at big famous like rock stars and stuff, a lot of them, unfortunately, use substances. <laughs> um, but if you remove that aspect and you think about the way that people respond. So Lemmy from Motorhead was a was a massive one for me. He he was somebody that was very straightforward, open and honest with what he was thinking um, and wrote a lot about that in his life and in his book and about how he would deal with fans, but how he would deal with people that like didn't like him. Um, and I think it was, and it was very genuine. You would read like the way that he dealt with people thinking that they were Satanists, people that were thinking that they should die because of the music that they make and all this kind of stuff. Um, and he just didn't care, but it was, it was a very honest way of, of how he didn't care, um, that did that. Um, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of other people, like, uh, especially into sports. I'm like a big sports person, like, and as a, as an athlete, I compete myself and I would like to read how people work through adversity and, you know, look at Lance Armstrong. So there's a huge amount of pressure that came to Lance Armstrong because he was caught taking, you know, he was caught taking uh, performance enhancing drugs. But if you look at what he did after his cancer diagnosis and you look at, the impact that he had upon like countless lives because of his drive and his will and the way that he returned back to again, goal setting, creating a team around him, people that he could rely on, people could be open and honest with people he could share with. He made fantastic things happen. Unfortunately, you know, it was tainted towards the end, but it's people like that. And I mean, there's one book, if you do get a chance to read it, it, it's, it's fiction. Um, but it's fantastic. It's called the curious incident of the midnight dog. Um, and it's about a murder of a dog. Uh, and it's a young man who's got severe Asperger's. And the book is written by a counsellor who's dealt with children of Asperger's for a very long time. And it's 
incredibly informative for the way that people can think and the way people can see the world. And, and when you read it, it makes you really, it makes you realize that not everybody sees the world in the same way and that simple interactions, dependent on which way your brain's wired and all kinds of different factors as you grow up can make you see things in so many different ways. And it, the book is both sweet, sad, um, and makes you see so many different perspectives. Uh, and it's actually become a very famous play, uh, like, broadway production so i know it's it's been around the world now as a as a play but the book is fantastic if you get a chance to read it you're talking about the curious incident of the dog in the time night time that's it yeah by mark Haddon. i'll put a link to that in the show notes uh um, it's gotten uh yes wow seven thousand reviews on amazon um and uh four and a half stars so uh people love it yeah, it's it's fantastic, and he's he's written that after working with with young people with with very different like Aspergers and uh, and very different ways of looking at life, and and I would say it's helped me both like look at the way that I see things and the way that other people might see things and how to react to people. I think that's it, it's it's very eye opening for people who have never worked with with people who are maybe suffering from you know from some form of of mental health because we all don't see the world in the same way and you certainly don't if you're suffering. And, and I think that was a, that was a great one for me. And I, I've often given it to people, especially when I was working in the police or other officers who, who would kind of not know how to change their style. I was like, read this, see how this person like sees the world. And then you can evaluate the way that you impact people with your words and the way that you approach them because they don't see it the same way as you. You know, you talked about the, how you can impact people with your words are, uh, are there things that you say or don't say or phrases that you say and don't say because you're aware of the impact it has on people? Um, Does that question well, make yeah. Sense? Yeah, no, definitely. It's so for a, a great example of that is we, so as part of battle cancer, we work with a group called move forward and, and that's uh Cancer survivors, cancer survivors of kind of like uh, 15 up into 35, uh, they all have allocated social workers. And it's been a program of getting them to do uh, CrossFit classes twice a week for 10, for 10 weeks. Um, and they we've gone really deep with the social workers about the wording that's used. And, and it was brought up to me recently, the, the name Move Forward and, and why we're, we're carrying on with the name Move Forward as we're expanding this globally is it's certain mindsets and, and, and words that can invoke a thought and a feeling about what you're going to do. So like we talk about battle cancer and we came up with that name because like a battle is deeply personal. It can be battle uh, individually. It can be battling for something. It can be that battle can mean so many different things. But when we want to move on from something, um, going back and using like negative words, when you're somebody who's on the, the borderline of, of tipping back into something really bad or tipping forward into doing something great, it's so important to do so. Um, that's really like a vague way, but I, again, I know this isn't particularly talk about the main thing that I do in my life at the moment, but I've, I've had experiences before where I've, uh, I've talked to people who've wanted to, for example, a lady who wanted to jump into a, a river, she'd weighed herself down with lots of different rocks and, and she wanted to jump into a river and end her life. And I was hyper aware of every word that I'd said to her. Um, and, my big thing is is just asking questions and, and not passing judgment. And I, and I know that sounds really wishy-washy, but 
even in off comments, you can pass judgment. And often giving a lot of your, well, giving advice is a very dangerous thing to do. I think it's about getting people to think for themselves and about getting people to, to kind of come to their own conclusions. So what I've always been very aware of is kind of saying, oh, well, when I did this or when I've done that, um, there's things that I can you can do as a suggestion, but not having too much of a I don't know if I'm describing it very well, but not not kind of saying that this is the only way. I think that's something that we can be guilty of. And and I've seen it in the past number of years. Like in the UK, we had Brexit. So we had people that were really on the fence of wanting to leave the European Union. We've had people that were on the other fence of wanting to stay. Uh, and unfortunately, both those camps, when it's like, I'm 100% right, this is my opinion. I'm 100% right, this is my opinion. They just clash heads. And, and nobody ever kind of gets across, well, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm thinking this. So it, it's really tricky. Um, I think also using certain terms can trigger huge amounts of responses in people, especially when you're looking at mental health and things that I cannot abide by is like people saying people are mad, like people aren't mad. Um, you know, often doing very flippant remarks in relation to like depression and things like that, because it's very easy to see when somebody's injured on the outside, it's incredibly difficult to identify and understand when someone's suffering pain from the inside. So I've been very vocal, um, previously about that. And that's, I'd say, yeah, it's kind of difficult because there's so many different words that you're kind of aware of. And, and it's not being, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the word where it's being too politically correct. I think it's just more about being human with, with each other. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers it very well, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, actually, you've done, you've done a great job because, I mean, at the root of it is it is being aware of what we're saying. And, and a lot of us, unfortunately, we're not trained or aware of what to say and what not to say, especially if we're, we're talking about, and not just for people who are mentally ill, but, you know, in everyday relationships where, uh, you know, people living together, especially now during the quarantine, uh, you know, you, we can say words to each other that trigger each other and not even be aware of it. Uh, you know, I took a, a negotiation, uh, some courses, and my, my girlfriend took a hostage negotiation course, and wow. uh, one of the most triggering words is you, Y-O-U, yeah. because mm-hmm. when you're talking to someone and, you know, you're in a heated exchange and you go, you blah, 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 you like you automatically makes the other person feel defensive. It raises the yeah. cortisol levels. It puts up a wall immediately. So a lot of people don't realize how powerful just the word you is. We're so caught up in like the bigger words and the F word and the C word and all yeah. that. But you... But paradoxically, the most comforting word is is your name. You know, it's like people mm-hmm. want to hear their name. I mean, there's even a whole science behind that. I, I won't get into. But uh, so it, it's it's. I, I say that to say, like, no matter how well trained you are and what you're, it's it's a challenge, and it's it's individual to each person. Uh, but we can all do better at improving uh, our communication and and and, uh, and and things we say to each other, so that uh, we can we can hold a safe space. I, I also think um, asking more questions. I think I think that's a big thing because quite often we make assumptions of what the other person's thinking or, or what their or what their point is trying to be um, without actually really understanding. And I know when we talk about 
I, I meet a lot of people who tell me their story in relation to cancer because they see what we do. I'm very front and center in relation to that. And, and it's very, it could be very easy for me to just say, Oh, that's so bad. Um, and that's like the stock response, isn't it? Like they, they must've heard that like countless times, but very rarely does anybody just say like, how did that make you actually feel? Or, you know, like every day now, how do you feel about them? How do you think about them? Whereas we almost as humans, if we don't have a close connection with someone, we're almost just waiting our turn to say something to end that awkward like line of, of conversation. We don't actually seem to try and ease it. And and like when I was saying about trying to get people to come to their own conclusion, it can be from asking them genuine open-ended questions. And closed questions can be incredibly dangerous, so, along with like suggestive questions, you know, saying like, you're okay, aren't you? Now that's so loaded in so many different ways. I've used the you. I've said that basically if someone comes back as well, no, I'm not okay. It's become like a conflict because that's me saying to them, well, I don't really want you to tell me that you're not okay. Um, so having open-ended questions gets fantastic responses out of people. It can be, it can calm people. It can stop and make them think uh, and, and genuinely get to something that maybe they were struggling to communicate to you and they just needed a bit of space to kind of say it. And I, that's been something that's helped me speak to an awful lot of people who tell me about loss and loved ones and, and personal like uh, tragedy, just asking them questions gets them to a, a kind of a nicer place. If, again, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, and I love that because like you said, getting them to think for themselves, it's, it's, it's one of the things I think it's part of one of the reasons why people who read a lot of self-help books still are struggling with the, the same thing that they've read a million books on is that <laughs> the book is doing the thinking for you. And it, you at yeah. some point have to put the book down and start working on all these tools and tactics and strategies uh, for on yourself and, and, and trying them out in the real world. Um, I, I guess my, my follow-up question then is, uh, you talk about answering questions, but you also talked about finding people uh, after they've uh, ended their life. Have you have you gotten there where you uh, were able to uh, prevent someone from uh, ending their life? Well, so I've I've had two instances of where I've had a conversation with someone who's who's in the attempt to do so. Um, one, like I say, was a was a, a lady who had escaped. Uh, she she'd left a, a mental support. Uh, like location um, and she'd managed to find a way to a really rural remote place uh, and she wanted to do that um, and that that became hours and hours and hours of a conversation where I just had with her and the problem you always have with that is more and more kind of support services turn up you have fire there because she's by the side of the water and they've got boats you have more and more police and then you know you have you have negotiators you have people who have that's their sole job to come and have that conversation but quite often you've already built up a rapport with someone and you've had that you've started down that train of conversation so she was one that i'll i'll never i'll never forget we successfully you know talked her away and, and we, we got her back to where she needs to get some help uh, i've had other ones where and predominantly i may be wrong people may kind of complain about this later but male suicide attempts tend to be more violent um in relation to the method of which they choose and in my experience and what i dealt with so i, I did deal with a young man who'd caused multiple stab wounds to his stomach um and turned up and, and and supported him and he did he did survive um but again that was more from a physical restraint and then dealing with it on that so I've, I've only had two experiences where that's in the process and, and one was very much a conversation led resolution and the other one was a i i need to save this person's life because of what what they've done to the damage they've done to them 
themselves. Um, so they're, they're quite two extremes there, really, of the opposite end of the scale. Well, you know, you're in an interesting place, England, because I, I'm also aware that they have um, like the loneliness police in London. I don't know if that's throughout all of England. And I don't know if it's if it's loneliness police that they, they call it, but it's basically uh, uh, service people who go out and and try to um, and reach out to people who they think uh, primarily the elderly, but people who they yep. think are more isolated, more lonely and, and, and just haven't. Uh, can't leave the house uh, and don't have much outside contact for one reason or the other. And uh, I wonder uh, if you've ever experienced, you know, feelings of loneliness uh, yourself and how you handle that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those really difficult things because, um, because you can be lonely, but not on your own, if that makes sense. Um and I think part of that was always in relation to to when I worked in the police because you would come out of work and the things that had happened to you, the people that were around me didn't experience. And it was always in the very early days of dealing with more serious ended incidents. I was always a strong believer in I don't want to drag somebody into this. So I, I don't want to bring like a a civilian into, into this world. Like I don't want that to happen. Um, but that as I grew up and as I, as I changed through my time in the job, like massively changed because you couldn't deal with it. I'd say, um, quite recently, like with the biggest amount of loneliness I think I've ever felt is, is right now. Like, that sounds really silly, but I was talking to the, about this to somebody on online a couple of days ago that we at Battle Cancer, we'd hosted so many events. We toured a huge part of the U S we'd fundraised like thousands of thousands. We'd met amazing new people, listened to stories and everything was about positivity. We'd launched to running this full time. So we were, we've got a team of us at four people. Um, and then all of a sudden that's just stopped. And as the founder and as the person who's like responsible for these people who now have a job with us, responsible to, we work with 38 different charities across the world who are all communicating with us saying like, can you help us? Can we get more information out? Can you get more people to donate to us? Um, being like the figurehead of that and often being the person who talks about it on podcasts who I've, I've written articles about it and, and it's a great platform it's a very lonely place right now because I'm not around other people so accessible who are uh, doing things that I'm doing or, or, or kind of understand, you know, there's, there's countless business owners and countless people all around the world right now who are probably feeling very lonely, very out of control of what they're doing. Um, so I would say in, in all honesty, it would be certainly in the past few weeks. And that's really made me go into like the next part of that question about like what I've done with that. And, and it comes back to sharing, like I am a massive believer in talking, talking to the right person and, and being open and honest because uh, we, we all wear a different mask. So, you know, you've got your like host mask on right now. Um, I've watched some of your stand up, like you have your stand up mask on. Um, you have your mask at home, you have your mask in your everyday life, you know, you have your mask in the role that you do with people who are, who are suffering. So it's very difficult to, when you're putting all those different masks on 
to kind of have that moment to yourself but get some genuine support because when you take that mask off it can feel lonely if you're not actually talking about what's happening to you so i have a big i have like um like i said before about when i know i'm not being myself when i know that there's things that are kind of i'm being a bit more irritable or like even silly things like i'm choosing more depressive or i'm choosing more aggressive music for example as opposed when i'm in the car as opposed to like listening to, to good uplifting music and then the first thing is it starts my wife like she she's been told about kind of nearly every experience i've had through the police she's been told everything throughout uh, and we have an agreement where we just say we will just talk and tell exactly how we're feeling for about 10 minutes um without a suggestion so without her coming back and saying i think you should do this i think you should do that it's literally just a listening um so that's always been a big one is 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 for me identifying it and then just having somebody or a place to just tell um and that's why i'm always trying to promote the different services that are in the uk that are in in the us for people to just ring up speak to a stranger don't even get any advice just just speak to them and just tell them and and i think also the reaching out to other people i think this isn't wallowing as a group but you when you're lonely and you think things are happening to you you can reach out to people who are in a similar situation and knowing that they're all going through the same thing doesn't make you feel as as alone and and we get that from the people we speak to who are cancer survivors or people who've lost people to cancer they they know that someone else is just in the same position as them and it makes them feel a little less alone um and i think that's that's a really key thing uh, and one really like silly little thing which i really like to do is uh voice messages on whatsapp to people because when we're in this method at the minute everything can just be over text like it's so easy to just send a text message or you know like send an instagram dm or something but to hear someone's voice and them hear yours that can make you feel so much better. I think that's a, a really big part of being connected is just a voice because you, you can pick up tone, you can pick up laughter, memory. So much can be done in voices. So just stop texting, stop emailing and ring people or, or leave them a voice message. You know, I really like that. I was against the voice uh, uh, memos for a long time. And now I really uh, enjoy it. And it, it does make a, a, a difference in terms of connectivity. I appreciate you, you sharing that. And also, you know, that whole you and your wife taking 10 minutes and saying, we're going to talk, but we're not going to fix each other. It's, it's, there's, I think that's a beautiful thing. I was just sharing something the other night with my girl. And I was like, I, I just want you to listen. Like, I'm, I'm just sharing. <laughs> I don't need you to fix anything. I got it, but I do need to to express it, uh, and, and it's valuable because uh, so much of the research shows that, especially for men, as we get older, uh, we don't make new friends, and yeah. so our so our friends are only dying. Right? We're we're, we're losing yeah. troops. We're not replenishing the the shores. Uh, and the shelves and and uh, but women are women are just for for the most part you know collecting friends is they 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 join a book club and a sewing club and and there are all these <laughs> different things and but most guys like who just <laughs> you're like I don't like, like the length of his hair yeah <laughs> and 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 our and our girlfriends and wives do their best to try to pair us up uh what other guy and we're just like yeah this you you know we're not going to talk to each other after this right like it's just (laughs) so uh, you know i I love that you you talked about 
you know, you know, connecting with your wife and then also, you know, uh, uh, leaving voice memos, just finding some way to connect that works for you. That's, that's really funny that you say that. I mean, I think it's such a, it's such an ingrained thing and, and I'm so guilty of this. You know, like I try and paint myself out to be someone that's thoughtful and, you know, I try and think about giving advice to people and, and all this kind of stuff. And then when, when you actually start looking at your own like things that you do that, you know, you shouldn't do typical one is I've got no friends. I don't need to speak to them. I don't need to have that. Um, and then so much of what we've done in the past, what I've done in the past few years is I've, I've traveled to different countries doing what, what, what we're doing at battle cancer. And I've met people from a complete different walk of life. That I never thought I'd meet before. And and you just spend a couple of minutes with them and you learn and pick up so much stuff. And yeah, not going to be my best pal going on, but it, it, it's incredible the people that then can accidentally come into your life and the, the things that they can do and the things that they can alter your course where, yeah, I like, especially a good few years ago, I was like, I don't need to speak to that guy. Why would I need to do that? I don't need them. Like, I've already got them covered. Like, I've got someone who can cut my hair. Like, I don't need to, do you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. So I think that's a, that's a really important thing to just, yeah, be open to what somebody might be able to do coming into your life. And I, and I think from a, being in the police, which is, is such a crazy juxtaposition, and I, I talked about this on another podcast that I was on with, funny enough, with another comedian. And um, he was talking about how... Uh, you know, as a police officer, and especially in the States, you can be seen as like being very paranoid of people. And when you watch comedies, the, the policeman's always the one who's like questioning the next door neighbor or they're like checking things. You know, they're, they're very, because they've seen crime and because they've seen mistrust and they've been lied to, they become very closed off and they become very suspicious of everybody. And then I like, so I kind of had that mentality and then I would go and put on one of our events and I'd be the most open person there. I'd be trying to get people to speak to me and tell me the stories and introduce people and, and like have genuine heart to heart. So I was like, this is way too much of a swing like this. You can't be so mistrusting of people, but then trust them and open up. So I think it's a big thing for me. Like I said it before, uh, whether it's a good way to describe it or not, but these things are wearing different masks for different occasions. I think it, it's the more you're aware of when you're putting that mask on, the less it can tire you out because you're, you're aware that you're behaving in a certain way uh, and the more it can help you change that mask and, and put a different one on that actually might help you instead of just being stuck on the, I'm suspicious of everybody. Everybody's a criminal. Everyone's lying to me. Like, okay, there's a place when I needed that, when I had actual criminals lying to me. I don't need to wear that when I'm at like a party or I'm, you know, I'm meeting people. I think that's always something that I've tried to keep check of in my own mind as well. Yeah, you know, you know, going back to that loneliness part too. I think part of it is, uh, like you said, like you were connecting with so many people and 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 putting on so many events that the contrast of that of being home, then just you and your wife, uh, it, it it's such a it's just such a, a a shocking and jarring juxtaposition, right? It's like it's yeah, not, when we think about comparison, it's not just about comparing our lives to other people's lives that could be damaging, but it's also comparing our lives to uh, our um, previous life. Or even if it was just 10 minutes ago, it was like, oh, I was surrounded by thousands of people. Where'd everybody go? <laughs> right? It's like, uh, it, I feel that way after a comedy show, I, I do a show. Everybody wants to shake my hand, take photos, uh, you know, and, and sign autographs. And then, and then there's no one there. And then you're just in yeah. a hotel 
and you're like, wow, this is strange. Like I, I, everybody was just like, you're the best, yeah, yeah. And and now you're alone. And you're like, I'm the best. Like, yeah. It's- I must be. Yeah, it must be so true. Like, if you walk into like the the hotel reception and they just kind of like, yeah, there's your room key. See you in the morning. You're like, what? You don't want a picture? You don't want? Yeah. A, you, don't, you didn't find me really funny. Like, it must. It is such a strange thing. And you you're right. Like, I love. Um, like when it comes to like weightlifting and competing and competing within that like sphere, a lot of people get obsessed with like their personal best and their personal best might have been two years ago, three years ago, but they, they structure their current training to that personal best that happened a long time ago and it can cause more damage and you can continually beat yourself up in a comparison to something that happened that was fantastic, but the this, this situation around that has changed. Your circumstances have changed. You know, you're not in that moment that you're in then. But if you set your goals and you make all of your, like, happiness on this thing that's happened then and is it's not necessarily realistic now, that can be incredibly dangerous. And that's one of the things I like to talk to people about with goal setting that you have to be very careful. You could have played a huge gig, and then if the next 10 are not as big and not as good, are you any less good as a comedian? Are you any less good as, as a communicator? Like, no, it's just the situation and things have, have changed, and that can be such a huge pressure to, to put on yourself and, and compare, like you said, compare yourself to yourself. Like, it could be just as dangerous as comparing to someone else. You know, I and I know my girlfriend gets frustrated when I do this, but She'll give me a compliment, like she'll be like, "You're the best," and I'm like, "Right now," you know, or you yeah. know, to 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 keep it in perspective of the way you feel about me, I'm aware is how you feel about me in the moment, and you're not always going to feel like that, and I want to leave it open to other feelings that you will have, not might have, but you will definitely yeah. have other feelings besides I'm the best, and I I encourage her and i and I, even for myself it's a way of keeping me in check also because you can yeah. walk around for the rest of the day thinking you're the best and then you can get lazy re- resting off that one compliment you know i'm laying on the couch eating whatever i'm the best like and <laughs> it's like no there's there's still work to do and you know i'm not my goal isn't to be the best it's to all it's to feel like i'm, I'm growing or to feel like i have a purpose and to feel like you know the the best that if you're at the best you're you're at the top and and uh and i'm not that's not necessarily the goal the goal is always uh growth and purpose and impact and um uh you know uh meaning you know to to have and 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 to be in a, in a moment to to be to be aware like you said to how do i feel right now like you're saying i'm the best but here's mm. how, here's how i feel and to be able to express that um so that and and I think that when that's a way that you keep the intensity in a relationship is mm. you know so many I, you know the the media TV all, all this uh, will paint intensity as like oh if if you guys want to spice it up come to Vegas or uh, <laughs> go to Jamaica well the truth is if you're just gonna carry those same uh, poor conversational habits and patterns with you. Uh, then you're just going to be right back to what made you feel like you had to leave your home that you, you, you know, you spent time building together and, uh, and, and nothing's more intense than eye contact and the mm, truth. Yeah. Right. It's so hard with people. 
And, and I think that goes back to what I'd, I'd, I'd kind of what, like I was trying to say before about we conversationally sometimes are just taking turns to speak. And that's not a conversation um, where genuine asking questions and having an interest is creates a completely different dynamic. And like, you know, like I said, I've listened to, to your different podcasts and like, you know, the way that you interact with that guest, if it's somebody who's not particularly comfortable in the initial part of speaking, the fact that you're showing an interest, the fact that you open, you ask open questions in relation to things that their experience or their expertise or, or their life that makes somebody feel comfortable and it makes them deliver probably the best they're going to give. And, and I think if that's when you see people who genuinely don't really care about other people or, you know, you'll see some talk show hosts and, and they just want to be funny. They just want to be the most liked person out of those people that are on there and it's their show. It's about them. They're the one. Whereas, you know, for, for you and listening to the other guests that you've had, you're communicating you're opening that up and that's what i think if i could put it in a way and bottle it and give it to people that would help so many different relationships not be it uh like love-based relationships but i mean friendships and families and 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 things like that where it would just actually give people the chance to to properly open up with each other as as opposed to just taking turns to talk i love that you know you mentioned something earlier about uh, how you didn't want to drag other people into this. You, or you said, I don't want to drag somebody else into this. And you're talking mm. about your emotions. And, you know, you we, we pointed out two things that are heavy indicators of suicidality. One is the feelings of loneliness. And, and we talked about how to cope with that. But also when people say things like, I don't want to drag somebody else into this, there's that sense of like, I don't want to be a burden to someone else, uh, you know, yeah. And uh, and so many people struggle with that, especially, you know, I, I keep saying men, but, you know, this is it's the, it's the springtime and, and, and uh, suicides uh, peak uh, or I say peak like it's a like it's a stock or like a good thing. But yeah. you see an increase uh, during this time because of the extra sunlight uh, There are other factors, you know, now with the quarantine and everything. But um. But that feeling of, of being a burden, like I don't want to bring someone else. How do you how do you navigate your way through that emotion? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge point that you made, and and it's it's something that I've seen in a lot of different walks of life. And like the the, the conversation I even had on on a Q and A on Saturday with a young person, he said, when I got my cancer diagnosis, he was like. I didn't want to be the burden on everyone. Like I didn't want to be that. He's like, I wanted to be the person who's like dealing with this. And, and, and that was originally me. Like I, I had that, but it wasn't from an illness point, but it was, you know, I, I've seen some messed up stuff today that if you took, a, if you took somebody off the street who didn't do this as a job and saw it, you know, they were going to be severely impacted for a very long time. And, and it used to be, I ain't telling anybody about it. I'm not doing it. It's me. I'll process it. And like, I'll work on my own way, but it, it definitely, definitely didn't work like that. And I think you, for me, it was writing down, uh, like, I can't tell I'm a writing down nerd, writing down a list of things that I do for others. So it's like a relationship's like a two way thing. It's like a, it's like a seesaw in a, in a child's playground. Like you want to balance. So if you balance, you have to have weight on both sides. Like the weight can't be one way because then one person is going to fly in the air and the other person's going to be stuck on the ground. Like you need to balance that. So being a true burden 
you're not. And it was so I, like I know, and it sounds like point scoring, but I would write like what I do for for my wife. Like I would write these are the things that I do, and these are the things that. I do for her. And one of the big things I always did was like, I would make a point of asking questions about what had gone on at her work because things are also relative. So yes, I may have seen something really bad at work. And like I worked the aftermath of the Manchester bombing, you know, like dealt with bad things, but that person, if you've never had that experience, you might've had just a terrible day today and it's impacted you just as much as it's impacted me, but the reference point is different. You know, look at someone who comes out of going in Afghanistan or Iraq, like the things that they've seen compared to what I've seen, it's people start to put different levels of, well, their worst is worse than mine. And when you actually look at what you do for the people around your life, you'll realize that you're not a burden and that a relationship needs a balance. So you can open yourself up. You're not just thinking, oh, well, I'm dumping on them emotionally. I'm telling them about something. You say, well, yes, I am going to do that. But I balance that with asking them about them. You know, I support them. I, I do practical things to support them, even if it's small. Like, there's a long running joke that, like, where we live in, in the UK can be really cold. So my wife on the side of her bed has like a heated blanket. So every night I put that heated blanket on. By the time she gets in bed, warm bed like as silly as that sounds that is a that's a brownie point on that balancing act so the things that you do for the people when you recognize that you do things for the people it can help you feel more comfortable to share and ask for people to take a bit of that weight back and that's something that i've tried to explain to people from a, a work setting and, and if people are struggling like now when they, they reach out about like loss or especially when loved ones are dealing with people who have cancer so when a friend or a brother or a sister or you know like a husband or wife has cancer the, the person who's well often has massive overlook because they don't want to burden other people with their feelings about what's going on but actually when you look at what you do for that person and you open up it actually helps the other person understand even better so yeah it was me i would look at that and i would say right whole balance and act like what do i do for the people okay, I'm allowed to, to, to give a little bit to get some back. Man, I, I love everything you said, Scott. It's it, everything that you've, you've been through. You know, I was thinking about your childhood and because you, you brought up the, uh, you know, talking to uh, family members. What was Who was there for you? How did you process the amount of death and, and all the funerals you went to as a child? I mean, it was, uh, so it's quite tricky. I think, so I had a, I had a very, I don't, again, like this is something I'm not, I'm not massively, not a lot of people know about. Like I, I don't have a, uh, any kind of relationship to be honest with the family when I grew up. So I was quite unlucky that my mother and father had various issues with like either a substance or like anger issues. Um, and I took the decision at the age of 15 to, to leave the house. So I, I left the house. Um, and I was very lucky that I had friends who were, who were great support. And then went to university, get jobs and where I am now. And that's like nothing, you know, there's so many different stories of people who have gone through things. And it, in, I used to at one point be very like bitter about that. Like I, my wife's parents, they're not together. They've got new partners, but they're a fantastic support network. They're so caring, they're loving, and they're just just a brilliant support network of a family. And I, and I would look at people like that, and I'd be like, oh, I wish I had had that when I was growing up. We're actually 
the way that I didn't have that almost made me look at how I deal with things myself. So when I lost loved ones from cancer at a very early age, like one including them was my grandfather, who was an incredible rock, like massive support, huge person in relation to a lot of other turbulence that was going on and taught me a lot of like life lessons growing up about how to do things like this, like ask people other questions, you know, like show empathy to people, like offer to help people in things, you know, be of use in the world. You know, he, he was always talking about like being of use, um, and being of use to other people so that even if they don't remember you, they remember the thing that you did or they remember the thing that you said, and that can have a lasting impact for a very long time. And, and working through that in my own way, I think helped me work what was good for me. And before you you said it like really well, there's so many self-help books out there and, you know, it's great read about different things and, and cherry pick what might work for you. But, you know, you look at the, uh, the big famous, like, uh, the Robbins guy who makes you walk across fire. Tony um, Robbins. And you, that's it. Tony Robbins. And you walk across fire and then, you're set. You're going to be a millionaire and you'll be successful for the rest of your life and your, your life will be cured. There'll be some things that he'll say that are practical tips and they'll be great, but you can't be him. Like he is him. You can't be him. You know, like say, you know, you read about Steve Jobs, you read about Obama, you read about like the sports and stars, you know, but you won't be them because they're not you. It's not the same thing. So for me, it was always about like, oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to use that for me. So I think like taking lots of advice from people, reading lots and and really thinking about your own behavior and your own thoughts can be a a really good way of, of working out what works for you. And and, and up to now, like it's, it's, it's done me quite well because I've not tried to copy other things. I've just nicked the stole things that were good and, and put them together in my own self-help book. So it's like, it's a self-titled self-help book that the only person it's going to be good for is me. If that, if that makes sense. I love that. I uh, actually bought a journal called, uh, on a front, it says self-help book and it's just empty pages because like yeah, you said, so cool. ultimately like you are your, you are your best, uh, uh, therapist counselor. And that doesn't mean you don't go get help, but it's like you said, yeah. you, you read books, you talk to people, you, you observe your own life, you, 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 you observe other people's lives and, and you take note, you take note of your own experiences and, and you, and you keep track of that because it's so easy to forget things. And, and over time you, you have your own self-help book, which is, uh, you know, Aristotle, I think it was Aristotle said that every man should have a book in one hand and a sword in the other. And, mm. and, and I truly believe the book is, is, you know, the, your journal, it should be, you should know why you have a sword in the other hand. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> like, where did this go? Like, yeah. And, and it, that's the biggest thing. When you learn about people's behaviors, behaviors are a response to something that's gone on. And it's very difficult for humans to kind of assess your own behaviors you know, like, I'll still do it now. Like if, if I'm feeling cranky and I go somewhere, maybe I'm a bit rude or, or maybe I'm not, like I said before, I'm not as open to meeting people, or whatever, but why am I behaving like that? And I think that's something that we just don't tend to do. And I think if people could ask that a little bit more about themselves, they could help themselves a hell of a lot more because they'll, they'll see why am I behaving that way? And, uh, it's, it's something that I used to always say to people who were in the middle of some kind of violent crime or something that had happened in life. Like, why are you behaving this way? And they'd always come back with like, I don't know. 
That was always the response. Why are you behaving this way? I don't know. And there, therein lies the problem. Like you don't know why you've responded to that. You know, you see this thing of uh, a guy bumps into another guy in a bar and then all of a sudden they're fighting. It's like, why? When you've stopped and thought about that, like, that's so ludicrous. It's so silly. There's so many different things that you could have just stopped in that period. And and I think that's that's something that separates really confident and, and self-aware people is just having the ability to look at their own behavior. Um, and Or at least if you're behaving bad, like your wife is there to kind of look at the behavior for you. So at least if you've got, <laughs> you've got somebody that you support, there's, there's, there's someone who knows you're good enough, that there's someone there to keep you in check. Uh, Scott Britton, I appreciate you taking the time out to be on this episode. Is there anything that you, you want to talk about that we haven't talked about that the listeners need to know that that could help, you know, improve their lives, give them a new outlook? I mean, the, the biggest thing for me is we are working with a charity called Movember. I know Movember are present in the U.S. Um, I could sit here and talk about bowel cancer. It's our baby. It's our thing that we're trying to grow. Um, there's stories on our website. So just go to battlecancer.com. Uh, we, we ask people to share stories with us if they're comfortable to because it just might inspire other people who are going through loss or going through a personal like battle themselves to have some light at the end of the tunnel or to just share something with each other. Um, we're launching our Battle Cancer Together program. So it's one day where we give a mental health toolkit that's been designed by the guys at Movember and we give it to fitness professionals and it's going to be, it's completely free for people to turn up to these. We need, we need to be allowed to be out in public first. Um, but, all that information is on our, our on our page. It's under the Battle Cancer Together program. So we're going to give a first aid kit, but for mental health, to fitness professionals to help the people who they coach on a daily basis or they interact with. Um, and then we're launching these ten week programs across the world where we we fund people to come and do our fitness classes to change. So yeah, if you don't want to check us out, completely fine. But make sure you go and check out November. If there's somebody that you're struggling with and you want to help them. This toolkit is phenomenal. It's super straight to the point. It can help you know a beginning place of what to say to somebody who you're genuinely concerned about. Um, and yeah, just I know I'm kind of a nobody in the universe, but if there's one thing I can ever say to anything that I've always learned with is just be prepared to talk to somebody. Like that can save your life and it might save somebody else's life if you just if you just open up and talk. Scott Britton, thank you so much for joining us. I, I always ask my guests uh, this question because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Scott? I would always say stop and think about the feelings that you felt before that are not how you feel right now. And that's so difficult. I understand that because somebody's mental state to get them to that point, it's incredibly difficult to remember good times. And it's very, very hard to do that. But for, even if you're considering it, even if it's that's a thought process for you, stop and think about the people that are in your life. Make a list of those people and make a list of the impact that you have on their lives. And as you write that list, you'll realize that your life is way more important than it feels like it is right now and you'll realize that your impact on the world is a lot bigger than you feel that it is and and whether that works someone i don't know but that's that's just something i've always wished that i'd be able to give to someone because seeing at the other end of it seeing that the impact that they did have the joy that they shared the love that they gave to other people and the impact that they had whether it be at work 
you know, whether it was in the social circles, people make huge impacts when they don't even know it. So yeah, just, just try that one before you do anything. Scott, thank you so much for sharing that information. I appreciate the listeners for listening in and rating it five stars, sharing it, sharing is caring. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you talking to someone, a coach, a counselor, a therapist, a friend, your wife, yourself. You know, this is not a substitute for you. You, There's work that has to be done uh, on, on a daily. It's just like a shower. You have to sit down and reflect on your thoughts and your ideas and don't let those seeds become uh, uh, trees of, of despair. Let them become a forest of prosperity. What? I just thought of that off the top of my head, people. Um but and if and and if you want to go to thrivewithleo.com uh, to you know get one on one coaching with yours truly, uh, thank you Scott. Check out Battle Cancer. Uh, we're gonna have links to all that in the show notes. We're also gonna have a link to the book, uh, the Curious Innocent, uh, the Curious Incident of the of the Dog or something. I forget what the title is, but it'll be in the show <laughs> notes. Uh, and uh, thank you. And let's get to tomorrow together. Peace. Thank you so much.